Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now, here's Brian. Oh, yeah. Back for another great episode of Sovereign Tech. Part of the, again, what I'm hoping is the quadruple load. If anything, you're going to get a triple load, you know, just sometimes that fourth time is, you know, just too much for for either the person to give or the person to take, you know, and then what are you going to do? But uh, we're going to try for it. We're going to try for it this weekend. <laughs> Uh, of course, you're getting all these loads because uh, I am traveling. I have uh, speaking engagements, the whole thing. And uh, I know I'm going to get to meet a lot of listeners uh, at these events. The one in particular I'm going to uh, this week is the Texas Bitcoin Conference uh, at Circuit of Americas in Austin. Uh, and that's on March 5th to the 6th. And it's going to be, I, I think it's going to be a great time. Uh, it's pretty much guaranteed to be entertaining. There's like a Bitcoin concert there. I, I, I think they're calling it a Bit concert or something along those Bitcoin lines. Cert. Bitcoin cert. I was just told by the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy that it is the Bitcoin cert, uh, which is pretty exciting. Now, I mean, you know, they're not going to have Kiss or... Uh, you know, or Poison and or Motley Crue. Boy, wouldn't that be awesome to have Motley Crue do a? They're they're on a. Can you believe? You know what? I I like to bring up news first thing in the uh you know first first bit of the show, and I'm really sad about this. Motley Crue is they're doing a a, a they're doing a, a farewell tour. I mean, come on, you know, Kiss is still going. You can keep going. Judas Priest has another album coming out. They, I mean, one of their members died. Good old good old KK. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really sad about that, but anyway, they won't be at the Bitcoin cert, but, um, you know, there'll be great artists there, I'm sure. So anyway, uh, let, let's get into the rapid fire stories while we're at it here. Uh, and I'm actually, my rapid fire story is kind of a, is kind of a personal story that I experienced. Of course, I just got back from Liberty Forum 2014 in Nashua, New Hampshire at the Crown Plaza. And that is why it's been, uh, you know, little little over a week since you've had a new episode of sovereign tech um and uh stephanie and i we were going to go to a restaurant with some great friends and uh and i think some new people too but uh but some great friends anyway and there was this chinese restaurant place that, that you know we looked it up on google maps uh and it you know, we're like, okay, well, it looks good. It's got a 4.1, you know, as far as star ratings and uh, doesn't look too expensive, whatever. That's fine. And so we start heading that way. We tell our friends where we're going um, and that, you know, they, they use Google Maps as well. And we start going and, you know, it, it it says it's only a few minutes away and it takes us on quite a loop-de-loop to find it. And then suddenly as we're trying to find it, we're ending up like near an airport and like by all these construction yards and all the stuff. We're like, wait a minute, there's, there's this really great Chinese restaurant out here. What, what the hell's going on? Uh, and then uh, actually a, bu- a buddy of ours who was with us in the car ends up calling the restaurant and saying, uh, you know, tr- trying to get in touch with them and no one picked up. 
it's sort of like, wow, does this place even exist? And no, it, it actually it didn't exist. And we're still not sure if whether it was, you know, we're either way, whether it's something that was getting built or not, where Google Maps took us. There's no restaurant getting built out there. I mean, we're way away, you know, from from really from anything uh, remotely like an area where uh, you would want to open a restaurant and hope people would come to it. So because Nashua is a pretty hopping place. Uh, but I mean, this is just, you know, way out in the woods, literal woods of Nashua, uh, if there are any. And uh, it, it was just it was weird, you know, that that Google Maps was such a fail. Uh, I mean, I mean, it was a big fail. You know, people knock on Apple Maps all the time, uh, how Apple Maps at certain points will literally like take you off of a bridge and you'd end up in the water, you know. Uh, but oddly enough, you know, actually, Apple Maps can find my house. I didn't I didn't know that. But Google Maps can't do that either. So don't put all your faith in Google Maps. Maybe you should try something like Scobler. In fact, they just updated it and it's a it's really a, a great thing. But anyway, it was just it was hilarious because everybody had all their phones out. It was really quite a technological fail. Everybody had all their phones out. Everybody's using, you know, putting in the, you know, they're trying to put in instead of the name of the restaurant, they tried putting in the exact address of the restaurant. And there was just, you know, it's like it's not here. There's nothing here at all like and there's no businesses around there's no houses around there's nothing around what what the hell where did, how, how did we get here uh so don't always count on google maps always give yourself plenty of time even if google maps says oh yeah we'll be there in five minutes yeah you might end up in the sticks so <laughs> anyway just kind of a kind of a funny story but it's it's funny because google is planning on improving their map software uh but this improvement wouldn't help what we ran into uh, and it's called Project Tango. Okay. And Project Tango is actually, it's it's a pretty much like a new phone sensor system that can map the inside of buildings. Uh, and that's, you know, take that for what you want. Some people are saying this is going to make for great games. But again, as we've talked about on this show, uh, you know, great, great games uh, that they use you know, augmented reality, which Project Tango would allow for, are actually all designed to just give Google better maps. And apparently that's even failed. So Ingress did not help uh, in Nashua, New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so so don't don't buy the hype. You know, if they say, oh, this is going to make a better experience for you. No, it's just going to give better data to Google. Maybe in the end that will help you out somehow. But then mapping the inside of your house. Why? I no, I, I don't I don't understand really the, the whole purpose behind that myself uh, anyway. But also, you know, a phone that they are talking about doing, even though they've already kind of gotten out of the uh, out of the phone business, supposedly by selling off Motorola. But I guess they're still planning on releasing Project Era. Uh, Project Era, A-R-A, is Google's like modular phone. We talked about a modular phone on the show a long time ago called Phone Blocks where you could essentially choose what options you want on the phone. Do you want a camera? If you don't want a camera, do you want to add in a second battery? Do you want a larger hard drive? And you could essentially change all these things up. And it looks like, uh, you know, just recently Google said, yeah, we're going to do this project era. And and this could, and it could end up being only 50 bucks when it comes out, you know, if it comes out next year, pretty exciting. I actually, I like the idea of that kind of phone where you can choose what, you know, what exactly, what parts you want in it, because like I'd put in four batteries, you know, hands down, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't need a whole, I really don't need the camera. I don't need a whole bunch of that stuff. 
So, but anyway, uh, you know, that, that's just, that's our rapid fire stories. Oh, one more rapid fire story real quick is that March 7th. Okay. That's coming up March 7th on Netflix, Clone Wars. That's right. Star Wars, Clone Wars, the lost missions will be on Netflix exclusively. Of course, you know, the next day, I'm sure you're going to be able to, you know, torrent it, but Anyway, and some some actually on some torrent sites, the episodes are already released, but they're in German. But this is really exciting. In fact, the trailer for it looks phenomenal. Look it up on uh, on YouTube if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, really, really exciting stuff. But I don't know if they're going to finish up the storyline with Ahsoka. And I really wish they would. Ahsoka was, you know, she was kind of like traveling towards the dark side at the end of season five. Thought it was fantastic. Uh, and then, you know, Disney bought Star Wars and and they decided not to really finish the show, but they're doing some kind of finishing with it. And I'm glad I'll take it. It looks exciting what they have planned. It looks, uh, you know, mature, which is great. You know, I'm always looking for that. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, that is it for Rapid Fire Stories. Let's get into our main story. OK, for this week. And that is you may have noticed this. OK, the story I've got is from Torrent Freak. And it's BSA offers Facebook users cash if they rat on software pirates. Now, you may have started seeing this. If you're not using ad, an ad blocker of some kind, uh, be it Adblock Edge, Adblock Plus, whatever, if you're not using one of those, you may have noticed, you know, uh, an ad or, you know, like a page link essentially show up in your Facebook feed on your mobile uh, and on the desktop saying, you know, report uh, software piracy or whatever. And, uh, I, I recently saw it and I was like, what is this? You know, now, I mean, normally I use Adblock plus it depends on what computer I'm using, but, uh, a lot of times I have it turned off because I'm an advertising executive for free talk live. So, you know, it's a pretty good idea for me to see the ads on the internet. That way I know who to contact. Right. Anyway, let's go with, uh, with torrent freak story here. The business software Alliance a trade group representing Adobe, Apple, and Microsoft is offering hard cash to Facebook users who report businesses that use unlicensed software. You know, I wonder if they offered Bitcoin, if there would be like a conundrum in people's minds. Because it'd be like, well, I got to support Bitcoin, uh, but I got to report uh, piracy. Uh, uh. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the anti-piracy group is running an ad campaign luring people with the prospect of a free, quote unquote, ski trip. All the major software companies see piracy as a massive problem. Unlike the music and movie industries, however, they tend to focus their legal action more on the business side than on individual consumers. Over the past two decades, the Business Software Alliance, BSA, has represented major software companies, including Adobe, Apple, Microsoft, Oracle, and Symantec, in their fight under, against under-licensed businesses. This has resulted in raids on various companies whose computers are often confiscated on the spot if the business owner fails to pay for pay his or her dues. Some have described these practices as mafia-like, but the BSA believes they're uh, needed to stamp out piracy. Recently, the BSA has upped the ante as they are now soliciting tips from the public about potentially infringing companies. While input from the public was always welcome, it's the supporting PR campaign that raises eyebrows. The BSA is currently running an ad campaign on Facebook, encouraging people to report piracy in return for a healthy reward. The example below shows how the group is trying to lure snitches with a ski vacation. 
And it shows a little ad that says, you know, no piracy. That's the kind of the page or the sign up. Uh, want to go on a ski trip? Report unlicensed business software. Get paid. Hit the slopes. And then it, you know, gives you a link to sign up for that. Those who click through to the campaign website and read the fine print will find out that BSA is not really offering a vacation. They do, however, promise to send tipsters a cut of an eventual settlement they receive when they choose to pursue a lead in court. This reward could reach $5,000 for a settlement of $15,000 or a massive $200,000 for a single tip if BSA gets a settlement of over $3 million. The rewards in question are targeted at users from various countries, including the U.S., Australia, Canada, and China. To show people how easy it is to become an anti-piracy reporter, the BSA also lists an audio interview with an informant on their site. I feel great about reporting piracy because it's, that's not exactly what they say, but because it's wrong for businesses to do stuff like that. I would do it again, no matter what. It was very easy to report. You have nothing to worry about, the informant says. Sounds great, doesn't it? Here at Torrent Freak, we appreciate a nice vacation as well. So hereby, we rat out the U.S. military for running unlicensed copies of Windows 7. We're looking forward to our reward. <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> it's too good. <laughs> Come on. How could you beat that? You think they can't get three million from the U.S. Army? <laughs> it's the best story ever written, I think, because it's so good. You, if you want to report a company for using unlicensed software, and we talked about this on this show on Sovereign Tech, just maybe two, three weeks back, maybe a little more, we talked about how the Army was using copies of Windows Seven that weren't licensed. And so, hey, Torn Freak, you know, they like, yeah, pay up, pay up, BSA. Come on, put your money where your mouth is. We got one of the biggest organizations in the world that uh, that is using unlicensed software. They are pirating copies of Windows 7. Uh, we need to put a stop to this right now. No matter, what did the informant say? I would do it again no matter what. No matter what. Doesn't matter if it's the U.S. Army. Go get them, baby. <laughs> actually, you know, I might applaud the BSA if they actually went after the U.S. Army for that. Uh, I, I thought it was hilarious. So I recommend if you happen to see um, this no piracy ad, go ahead and sign up for it. And when you do it, mention the United States Army. OK, and uh, I think there's even an option to put in a link, you know, to the web to to where uh you know, to where this, this organization is. And you could either link to the story about how, you know, the army was using, uh, you know, essentially pirated copies of windows seven or unlicensed copies anyway. Um, and let them see it, you know, and just flood them, flood them with this stuff. I think it'd be great. So jokes, half jokes, I should say half jokes aside, <laughs> cause that is so damn good. Uh, this is insane. Okay. Uh, you know, now why are they promising a ski trip? I think there might be like some rules, oddly enough within Facebook that 
forces them, you know, to have to like kind of promise it that way. They can't just offer you cash or something along those lines, or maybe they're just trying to make it look not so, uh, you know, uh, they're trying to make the deal look sweeter. Of course that, that makes sense. Um, but ridiculous. Okay. And you know what? I mean, like I've talked about this before. Okay. Pirated software, nothing stolen. If it's a copy of something, it's a copy. It's not the product. It's a copy. That means no one lost anything. So it's not theft. Well, they lost the money from the, from the license for it. Are you sure? If they didn't get the copy, are you sure that they could, that they would have actually bothered to pay for it? Probably not. If they really thought it was that wonderful and that it was worth the price, you know, being asked for, etc., they probably would have given you the money. Okay. This falls under, uh, you know, I mean, it's so easy to debunk because like the, the people that download that, that, that pirate quote unquote, the most music actually spend the most on music every year. It's statistically proven. Okay. This is, this is crazy. Uh, you know, and, and like, Adobe, I mean, come on, are you serious? You're charging. I mean, how much did Adobe used to charge for a copy of Photoshop? Thousands of, you know, 1200 bucks for the creative suite or something. I mean, just these insane prices. Okay. And you know, the people that wanted to pay for that would pay for it. But you know, what's happening is, is that people, I think they don't feel that they can get, they have a business idea. They want to get it up off the ground. Okay. And the market's already answering this because people don't want to pay that price for Adobe products. And so now Adobe's going to a monthly model, you know, almost a cloud-based model, okay, where, yeah, I mean, you pretty much, you don't get offline editions of, of Photoshop anymore because, you know, people don't want to pay it, but people will pay the monthly charge or they're running to open source versions of these things that are doing, a, you know, is almost as good a job. They're getting better and better and better. Everybody that's used Adobe for years hates it. They're trying to get away from it. It's just like Windows. They're just waiting for something to have all the features that they need, and then they'll just run away. Okay. The problem isn't piracy of software. The thing is, is that the software is not providing value to the people that want to use it. Okay. It's not providing the value that they want to pay for. Um, you know, with, with Windows, Actually, oddly enough, like Windows pirated Windows, Microsoft knows it was going on and they actually kind of winked at it because they figured that, you know, if everybody used Windows, whether they paid for it or not, the big businesses were going to pay for Windows no matter what. Of course, apparently that's not true anymore either, is it? Because the, you know, the U.S. military has an an unlimited budget, quite frankly, and uh, they're not even paying for Windows anymore. So. The point being is that the problem isn't piracy. That's not why people aren't paying for software. They're not paying for software because either a, uh, you know, there's open source options that are superior or perhaps just, you know, philosophically, they want to use an open sourced, uh, software instead, or B your software sucks. You know, your you, the, the, the software, the app, whatever that you made is not worth the money you're asking for. That's all it is. It's not, I mean, it's the same thing with the movie business, with the MPAA, the MPAA, they, they complained and complained and complained. 
oh, we're not making enough money. We're not making enough money. Uh, it's because people are downloading movies and, you know, they're downloading cam jobs of the films. And so they can't, uh, you know, that they're not going to theaters anymore. No, that wasn't the problem. The problem was, is that because the following year, by no efforts of the MPAA, they, they did a record year. Why? Because they actually released good movies in the theaters again that year. It was just, it was an off year or an off two or three years. Look, stop blaming people because you make shit. Okay. Just, just, just stop that. You know, I remember Harlan Ellison. He had, he had, he had really interesting advice for writers. A writer would ask him, look, I want to make, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm trying to sell my work. And you know what Harlan Ellison said? It's like, well, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you why your work isn't selling. It's because it's crap. He said, stop writing crap. If it wasn't crap, it would sell. Okay. Now it's a little harsh. All right. But the point is, is kind of accurate. Is that, look, if you're going to make a great movie, people are going to go to theaters to go see it. In fact, you don't even have to make a great movie. Transformers 2 proved that. That was that was a, a locks. And, uh, it, you know, it made gangbusters in the middle of a, a recession at that. So, you know, th these campaigns are a waste of dollars. I'm sure to some degree, if this isn't funded by the MPAA and the RIAA and the BSA and whoever else, uh, I'm sure the government has funds in there. So your tax dollars are going somewhere uh, in these companies that just, you know, one day maybe they'll admit we've run out of ideas. I mean, what's the biggest stuff on, on you know, out there right now? The biggest stuff is always something based on a book right now because you know there's no more original ideas it, it seems or there's the creativity's gone for whatever reason so but they got to figure out something they got to make they got to make their investors happy they got to make everybody happy and say no 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 this can't be the reason that we're down in money the reason's got to be these terrible torrent sites you know that are that are or you know people making copies of windows and all that you know and all this stuff and that's crazy because, you know, you know what else disproves that is Ubuntu. There's no charge for using Ubuntu. And Canonical makes plenty of money. Why? Because they, they changed their business model. They said, well, we live in a world where, you know, software is freely available. And so we're just going to offer tech support to people for our software. The software is totally free. You need help with it? Okay, fine. We're going to charge a little bit for that. And Canonical's doing great. They're coming out with phones this year. You know, I mean, they're, they're branching out. They're all over the place. You're going to have Ubuntu on your refrigerator soon enough. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's that's how much they're growing. Okay, the the whole piracy argument. The it's it's just it's an it's an old business model, an old way of thinking that's just letting out its last fumes of the breath of the dragon because the fire's all gone. So take hope. It's okay. And like I said, uh, yeah, if you see that no piracy thing, report the U.S. Army. Tell them Brian Sovereign sent you. I'll be back with more as Sovereign Tech. Hello! Got an energy spike. Hold on! Launch. Now! I'm 
Calling Lenarn back to the Stone Age wasn't enough for you? Then we heard it. The sound of something terrible being born. This is madness. Station 3 to Commander Ivanova. Centauri have launched a full-scale assault. The time is coming on! It's our turn now! Two million tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. A world where empires rise and fall. Where dreams are born and die. Where war and hatred are challenged by love and faith. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity. It is our last, best hope for peace, for victory, for freedom. It is Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Tech Roulette. Want to play? Oh, it is time for Tech Roulette. And of course, you have the Stefano Demira of Liberty here with you, Brian Sovereign. That's right. And if you don't know who Stefano Demira is, uh, hit up Wikipedia. No, I'll tell you. Uh, Stefano Demira was uh, a soap opera character from Days of Our Lives. Um, and he was the villain. And still is the villain. He's been the villain for decades, literal, like 40 years, I think, maybe. And you can't, the guy like keeps dying and he just keeps coming back. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I always found him to be a tremendous character. And yes, I used to watch soap operas, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but he's great. And so, yeah, so in, in, not that I need new monikers. I have new ones all the time that, uh, you know, that, 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 uh, listeners of the show, uh, give me, uh, what was it? Libertine in chief. I love that. I, I think that's so good. Um, but anyway, I, I had fun with it. The Stefano Demira of Liberty. So may, maybe someone else will uh, will find that humorous. Um, but it is time for Tech Roulette, where I get stories sent in from listeners of this show, and I cover them. I do eeny, meeny, miny, moe, and I choose one. I have tons to go through, uh, but that's okay. Please keep them coming. Some of them lose their relevance. Some of them get disproven or whatever over time, and so then I don't have to worry about them. I hit delete. Uh, but please do keep the stories coming. I, I really enjoy them. And this one is pretty interesting. In fact, it's, it's ironic that we were talking about writing crap in the uh, in the last segment. Uh, I actually I did not plan that. But as I said, it often happens that that Sovereign Tech will follow a theme every once in a while. Um, and this story comes from the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> uh, NASA tries to rewrite the book. On science fiction, agency's partnership with novelists will produce NASA-inspired works of fiction. Oh, boy. Let's read about this. In William Forkston's new science fiction novel, Pillar to the Sky, there are no evil cyborgs, alien, alien invasions, or time travel calamities. The threat to humanity is far more pedestrian. Tight-fisted bureaucrats who have slashed NASA's budget. Oh, no. Wow, that's going to make for a gripping fucking read. Uh, the novel is the first in a new series of NASA-inspired works of fiction, which grew out of collaboration between the National Aeronautics and Space Administration and science fiction publisher Tor. Uh, not to be confused with the Onion Router, which we fully support on this show. Uh, the partnership pairs up novelists with NASA scientists and engineers who help writers develop scientifically plausible storylines and spot check manuscripts for technical errors. 
The plot of Mr. Forkston's uh, novel hinges on a multi-billion dollar effort to build a 23,000 mile high space elevator, a quest threatened by budget cuts and stingy congressmen forthcoming novels in the series will explore asteroid mining wormholes and astrobiology. Fact-based science fiction may sound like a contradiction or a poor marketing strategy in a literary genre that typically celebrates flights of fantasy, but Tor and NASA say both stand to gain. Novelists get access to cutting-edge research and experts in obscure fields. A NASA official says that shaping science fiction offers an innovative way to reach out to the public to raise awareness of what the agency is doing. Um, I'm going to stop right here and make two points. One, is I'm pretty sure Tor is getting a paycheck, uh, or at least the authors that are going to be working with NASA on this stuff are going to be getting a paycheck from NASA. So if NASA's big concern is budget cuts, why are you paying writers, you know, to, to write nonsense stories? Uh, that, I mean, that, that, that seems like, to, you know, that's totally backwards. It's backwards economics, right? Crazy. Um, and yeah, it, it's, you know, now fact-based science fiction. Okay. Uh, nothing wrong with that. I like the idea of, of being completely, you know, accurate in, in, in what's, what's going on. Uh, but it, that's what they actually, they call hard science fiction. I'm a huge fan of that. It's always my favorite kind of science fiction is for things to be factually accurate. Um, but my concern here, uh, you know, to raise public awareness of what the agency is doing. Look, NASA has been pretty much, you know, they've been a, a, a weather uh, station. They've been a weather company for the past, you know, maybe five, maybe even a decade, you know, ever since the space shuttle got shut down. That's all they've done. They, they, I mean, <laughs> What are they advancing? Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. On the ISS, they're putting stuff up up in the ISS. They're doing uh, medical research and zero-G. They're doing all these, you know, kind of wild things. But they're not doing, like, the really far-out stuff that definitely, you know, would grab the minds of people in fiction. Uh, and and it's so funny because, you know, like, how is NASA getting away with using tax dollars to somehow attack Congress, you know, for, for budget cuts. Um, that's insane. In fact, you know what? NASA could really solve all of this. They already started so solving all this by not looking to Congress, by not vilifying congressmen, not to say that they don't quote unquote deserve to be vilified. Okay. But by opening up the private sector to, you know, by, by, you know, loosening regulations on what the private sector can do with space exploration. They're solving their own problem by not going to Congress. And in fact, the budget cuts, they're doing things 10 times cheaper than they ever did before. For what little they're actually doing. Take that all the way to going to space shuttles. Okay. Or for a space elevator, a 23,000, what was it? Uh, a 23,000 mile high space elevator. There's people that have been trying to, there's a company in Japan that's been trying, I know they've been trying to do this since the late eighties and they were still planning in the nineties. And I know they were still planning in the aughts. Let them do it. Take the gloves off of regular human beings. Okay. 
And then you don't have to waste everybody's time reading crap novels that's somehow supposed to give you a better image, okay? And, and, and like somehow making it seem like, oh, well, it's this part of government that's the problem. No, government in its entirety is the problem. Uh, let's move on. I'll read a little bit more here. Um, NASA has been hosting novelists at its research facilities for multi-day tours titled Science Fiction Meets Science Fact. At one mixer in October 2012, some 20 science sci-fi writers mingled with NASA experts at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. They toured the Radar Detector Development Lab, Laser, and Electro-Optics Facility and Cosmic Ice Laboratory. Novelists tried on white anti-contamination suits and were sent home with fragments of the heat shields used to protect satellites. Heather Graham, a novelist who went on the tour, said chatting up NASA experts gave her an idea for a teen romance novel involving string theory, wormholes, nanotechnology, and the discovery of intelligent humanoid alien life. Man, that's a gripper. Teen romance novel involving string theory, wormholes, nanotechnology, and the discovery of an uh, intelligent humanoid alien life. Great. So now we have tax dollars essentially funding NASA meets Twilight. Does anyone else find all this sounding just positively ridiculous? I'll read some more. She and her co-author, John Land, are collaborating with NASA astrobiologists to develop a plausible explanation for how a handsome high school quarterback might actually be an alien whose ancestors traveled to Earth millions of years ago through a cosmic wormhole. <laughs> I mean, it's the Wall Street Journal. Another novelist participating in the program, Willem Cohen, uh, drew on NASA research for his forthcoming novel about asteroid mining, which involves capturing an asteroid, dragging it back to Earth and extracting minerals. Mr. Cohen is the former defense secretary under President Bill Clinton and the author of thriller novels such as Dragonfire. He describes his forthcoming novel as a political thriller about murder, international intrigue and space issues involving NASA. He, de he declined to say whether he thinks asteroid mining in real life is a good idea. You'll have to read the novel, he said. Um, now, th these these stories how exactly are they? Uh, let's see, what, what was it? What's William Cohen uh, writing here? Uh, a political thriller about murder, international intrigue, uh, and then space issues involving involving NASA. So how exactly is a murder mystery uh, with a little bit of, uh, you know, international uh, hijinks supposed to make NASA look better? In fact, if I was reading a novel where there was like a murder that occurred in the Kennedy Space Center, I'd probably want to, you know, I'd be a little sketched out walking around in the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, it isn't the first time NASA has ventured into pop culture. NASA has commissioned artwork celebrating its accomplishments from luminaries like Norman Rockwell and Andy Warhol. The agency has consulted on Hollywood films, including Armageddon. Oh, yeah, because Armageddon was a bastion of science fact. <sighs> uh, anyway, the Avengers... Uh, now, I'm not sure which Avengers they're talking about, if they're talking Uma Thurman or if they're talking uh, Robert Downey Jr. I don't know. Uh, anyway, and Transformers Dark of the Moon. I, I think it's Dark Side. Uh, anyway, that's the third Transformers movie, right? Uh, boy, NASA's doing a bang up job of making things look good, aren't they? <laughs> that movie was so bad. The first Transformers movie was actually all right. I, I, I didn't mind it. 
none of none of it compares, you know, obviously to the to the cartoon or certainly the real Transformers, the movie with uh, Rodimus Prime. Um, and actually, I know I'm not going to share that fact with you, uh, but like the, the last two films, come on, you can write into me, Sovereign Tech at RiseUp.net. Those those were terrible. OK, uh, two years ago, NASA teamed up with hip hop star Will I Am who wrote a song about space exploration that was first broadcast on the Mars Curiosity rover and beamed back to Earth. That's kind of weird, I guess. I mean, maybe that's kind of like, you know, the the, the disc they put on the Voyager probes. Um, and I'm all for writing, you know, music that is science fiction themed. Uh, in fact, I, I know of an album coming out soon uh, i think that that actually is is like that and i think that's great but how much did it cost will how much did it cost you to pay will i am to do that ridiculous okay some see nasa's involvement in movies music and books as an attempt to subtly shape uh public opinion about its programs Getting a message across embedded in a narrative rather than as an overt ad or press release is a subtle way of trying to influence people's minds uh, it makes me worry. Let's see. Uh, or says Charles uh, Seife, uh, author of Decoding the Universe. Hopefully I got his last name right. Who has written about NASA's efforts to rebrand itself. It makes me worry about propaganda. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Anidia Santiago Arce, a NASA official who is coordinating the author scientist exchanges, says the agency isn't pushing pro NASA storylines. The collaboration didn't include any NASA funding. I don't believe that. OK, uh, I said that from the get go. They they may say that. I just I don't believe it, that these authors out of the kindness of their heart are just going to put in NASA stuff. They didn't get any incentive. Yeah, no, no way. I mean, that that's ridiculous. Why? Like, why bother? You know, if you're, you know, cross the palm of silver when you're a writer, that's how it works. OK, I, I just I, I, I don't believe it. Uh, So. Anyway, they, they talk a little bit more about the book uh, Pillar to the Sky that uh, that that Forshin is writing. And you can read about that. But I, I just want to go ahead and talk about this. Um, you know, the reason NASA has an image problem is because they're not doing anything. And so they're saying, well, we, you know, we got to show people that we're doing something. Well, then just show them what you're doing. You know what I mean? It's and in fact, you know, people were glued to their televisions in the 60s, uh, you know, and, and for a little bit beyond because you really saw what NASA was doing. You really saw how they were pushing humanity forward. Now, you could say they're doing a lot of little things, blah, blah, blah. OK, fine. Um, but that stuff is not interesting unless you really see the applications of it. OK. And, you know, getting people to write about string theory and all this stuff, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's not. Yes, it's exciting if you're excited about it. OK. But all NASA has to do is, is say this is what we plan on doing with this information uh, and, and people just need to see it happening. You know, this this is this is the craziest harebrained scheme. I mean, but it's no different. Please. NASA is not like alone in this. Uh, you think the military doesn't love helping out make movies and helping out authors with their books to make the military look like they're necessary and good. It's the same thing. 
It's a government service nobody wants to pay for because they're not seeing the benefits of it, real or imagined. And because, it, you know, if people did see that, if NASA was actually doing a bang up job, you know, of their job, uh, they wouldn't need to do anything of this sort. OK, it's just like the military. You have to keep getting told that you're not safe. You have to keep getting told that there's boogeymen out there. Otherwise, you wouldn't need it and you just wouldn't put up with it anymore and you'd lose interest, which is what's happening with NASA. They're not doing anything. They're not doing anything exciting, I should say. Okay, there is a lot of NASA work going on that I agree is really, really phenomenal. Okay, but at the same time, that work, take the gloves off of, you know, private industry and let's see what happens. Because then the little areas where they have allowed the gloves to come off with, uh, you know, with private space companies, the most amazing things are happening. So it's a waste. It's a waste and it's insulting. And I agree with the guy. It smacks of propaganda. It does. It smacks of propaganda. Uh, I, I mean, it, you know, what you're <laughs> influencing thoughts, you know, and it's not mind control, but propaganda, you know, is, is a, a pretty mild form of that, I suppose. I don't know. So just, a, you know, it doesn't impress me. I love the fact that people are doing hard science and they're wanting things to, you know, to look legit. Uh, but you know, you don't need NASA to do that. You know, just, I mean, in fact, that's why, again, I can't believe if this was such a big deal, I would think that Tor would just pay, you know, some astrophysicist somewhere and say, Hey, could you go over our books for us? So I really, I gotta wonder, I, I gotta believe NASA's funding this somehow. It's, you know, maybe they're changing the names or something, but I don't believe it for two seconds that they're not funding this stuff. Um, now, you know, a lot of people knock NASA because they're saying, well, now they're all, it's just a global warming uh, company or it's just a global warming organization or just a climate change organization. I don't think that's unfair. Uh, I'm all for those kind of technologies getting developed because they will help with space exploration. Okay. Um, but I mean, the whole green thing, if that's what they're trying to do in a lot of these books is push how, how NASA is pushing green forward. Uh, green's, green technology is a mess. It's not a bad thing, but it is a marketing mess. And it's not a marketing mess as in we need to write books about how it's good. It's a marketing mess and how it's being sold to people. Okay. It's being sold to people in that if we don't do this, the earth is going to get destroyed. No, the earth is not going to get destroyed. The earth doesn't care. Okay. If, you know, we could put off a bunch of nukes, the earth lives on. All right. Um, humans are the things that would end up disappearing. Okay, so there's there's a there's a lack of honesty in the marketing that's going on. Okay, uh, anyway, that's a whole other story, but it's a story hopefully that won't get funded and told by NASA through its crony science fiction authors. I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. We usually aren't told what you can do to be helpful if your partner was sexually abused as a child. For most women who weren't abused, unless they were raised in sexually repressive households, their sexual feelings are associated with good outcomes, and there isn't a whole lot of negative baggage attached. They don't usually associate sex play with danger 
or with feeling overwhelmed or out of control. Also, most women enjoy being in the moment with a partner sexually, where a woman who was sexually abused might have certain triggers that can cause her to automatically zone out. So if your partner was abused, it's important for the two of you to talk about how you can make your lovemaking feel safe. And I'm not talking about always being gentle or non-aggressive in bed. I'm talking about understanding that there might be things that could occasionally cause her to feel panic that aren't your fault. Now, it could be really helpful if you can understand this and learn ways to respond or to totally stop or offer reassurance if that's what she needs. Maybe she can give you signals for when strange feelings might be happening. It's just possible that because of the extra communication and understanding that this requires the two of you to have, that your sexual relationship could end up being closer and more satisfying than a lot of other relationships. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. Software of the Week. It is time for Software of the Week, where I cover a piece of software that I find interesting. Sometimes it's something terrible. Uh, and sometimes I cheat a little, and this is a software of the week. I've done this before, maybe a couple times, where I talk about an altcoin. And this is an altcoin, little new on the radar. I don't know how all this is going to work out, but it is an intriguing idea that's being done. It's really being done in a couple places, but the altcoin I'm talking about today is Aurora coin. Okay, and Aurora coin it's a cryptocurrency. It's based on Litecoin uh, and it's being, it's specifically be designed for use in Iceland. Okay. Other than it being based on Litecoin, I don't know of anything special, like any special features about it. I've looked into it. I don't, I don't see it. So pretty much the rebranding Litecoin to become, if their plan works to become, uh, you know, Iceland's currency of choice. Uh, because Iceland has had a really rocky uh, few years, you know, as far as uh, what the Krona, I think, is their, yeah, I think it's Krona's, uh, is, is their currency. And it's, you know, been devalued almost 100%. You know, it can't be 100, but, uh, and there is just, it's, it's a mess over there. You know, and banks are asking to get paid back. I mean, there's just, there's all this wild stuff. It's really interesting to, to, you know, read about Iceland. And in fact, oddly enough, you know, I don't like to call conspiracy th theory on things, but um, the, the media does keep pretty quiet about what happens in Iceland because the people in Iceland do seem to be very much aware that, uh, you know, the, the, you know, fiat currency is a problem or I shouldn't say fiat currency, but you know, like that, that banks are an issue over there, uh, that the government's corrupt, you know, the, the whole business, a lot of the stuff that people say in the United States, uh, except over there, it's far more, you know, it's far more adopted, uh, ideology. So anyway, this Aurora coin, it got made to, you know, to essentially, uh, become the new currency for Iceland. And it, there, I think it's going to get 50% pre-mined. And there's a countdown. If you go to auroracoin.org, there's a countdown right now uh, for 23 days. Okay. And, you know, or let's see, when this gets released, it'll be like March 1st, I think, or March 2nd. Uh, and so in that case, it'll be like 20 days. Okay. Until this, this all gets essentially dropped. There's going to be such and so much 
uh, Aurora coin given to every Icelandic citizen that's on the Internet. That's the plan. How all this is going to work out, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, They say they can essentially prove who is on, you know, the Internet in Iceland. And actually, I guess, uh, unlike some countries, 96 percent of the population of Iceland is on the Internet. So, you know, that means, okay, we can actually I mean, 96 percent is really good. So I suppose a currency, a cryptocurrency is a viable thing if 96 percent of your population uh, is is on, you know, is, is on the Internet, you know, can can has a data connection. Uh, so we'll see what happens. You know, I, I don't know. It's interesting. I do. I think this is going to replace it or, you know, become the main currency of Iceland. No, probably not. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see it of course, you know, and, and Iceland's not like, they're not calling for, uh, for anarchy. They're not calling for a non-hierarchical society, you know, society. Uh, so, you know, there's always, there's still room for coercion inside of all of that. Uh, but I mean, you know, maybe it's a first step, you know, I'm not a big fan of incrementalism, but maybe this is incrementalism. Uh, I don't know. And maybe if it works, maybe other countries will try this out by just replacing the currency. Uh, A lot of people say, you know, that actually that this is the idea that when, um, when Frank L. Baum wrote, um, wrote the wizard of Oz, that this is what he was talking about doing was just like, don't pay back, you know, the, the banks and have a country come up with its own currency. And of course he was originally, uh, you know, bomb was originally planning on silver being that currency, the currency of choice. Of course that was, you know, over a hundred years ago. Um, and that's why uh, originally Alice's slippers were silver. They weren't Ruby like they are in the movie. Right. So, you know, this is, it's an old idea. It's an old economic idea that hasn't been tried too many times. As far as I know, I could be wrong about that as far as I know. So we'll see Aurora coin. I might buy in a few, you know, outside of the 50% that are being given away. I'll be back. From big finish productions, Blake seven, the classic audio adventures. I'm taking liberator in on manual. We'll be in teleport range in two minutes. What the hell was that? Information. Liberator has been attacked. You don't say. Put up the force wall. Confirm. Message to all ground commanders. Initiate the final phase. Let's crush these rebels once and for all. My name is Avon. Kerr Avon. Kerr Avon. Our hostage arrives, which you may be unnecessary. As a hostage, it's nice to be superfluous. You can go to Blake7.com to find more of the new adventures of one of science fiction's greatest masterpieces. Blake7 at Blake7.com. It is time for listener emails, where I answer the questions that don't have to necessarily do with science and technology. Of course, Sovereign Tech is a show about science and technology and secession and how it can all set you free. But it doesn't have to be about that. Uh, And you can, of course, email SovereignTech at RiseUp.net. You can go to SovereignTech.com and you can actually message me on SovereignTech.com if you have a SoundCloud account as well. Uh, And I do just want to say a couple, you know, totally free ways that you can help out the show. 
is A, you can follow Sovereign Tech on Twitter at Sovereign Tech. That's my personal Twitter account. Uh, and B, you can uh, make a SoundCloud account, which if you're not going to post sounds or many sounds anyway, uh, can be done totally for free and anonymous. You don't have to put in your real name if you don't want to. You can even use your Google uh, account, your Google Plus account to sign in or your Facebook account or whatever. And uh, if you give me a follow on SoundCloud, both of those totally free ways that you can really, really help the show out. Uh, anyway, so you, you can get in touch with me through all those venues as well. Um, I got a, a listener email, okay, about Chrome versus Firefox. And the listener was asking, you know, he said he uses Firefox because there's a lot of stuff for what he, you know, his work or whichever that, uh, that allow, you know, that requires Firefox essentially, or where Firefox makes his workflow very smooth. Uh, and you know, that's cool. But why do I keep telling people to use Chrome? Okay. Uh, great question. And I, I, you know, what is the greatest web browser out there today? Uh, Firefox, you know, hands down, or if you want to be real fancy, you could say ice weasel. Okay. Which is actually Firefox for Debian. Uh, or if you use uh, tails, you use ice weasel instead of Firefox. And that's all because like, Debian didn't want to play ball with Firefox on some of the uh, more questionable, maybe uh, open source options within Firefox. So there was a branding issue anyway, that I won't go into that. Um, so yeah, Firefox is the best, you know, no, no doubt about it. Now, why do I recommend Chrome? Uh, for many reasons, the average user, okay, uh, is not concerned with, you know, the NSA, or they're not concerned so much about, uh, you know, so many things where I think a lot of people would still say, Hey, don't, you know, don't use Chrome because Google's in charge or there's parts of it that aren't open source and stuff like that. I don't think the average user cares about that at all. Uh, the average user just wants security from like JavaScript and, you know, various things on, on websites, uh, you know, when they go to porn websites or whatever, uh, that that's, and yes, you can like with JavaScript with Firefox, you can put on no script, but you kind of got to train no script you know, to, to really work well to where you're having a flawless internet experience. That's the price of security. I grant you. Um, but you know, I, I'm just saying for the average person, uh, Chrome is kind of the way to go. Chrome also Firefox has recently, you know, in the past year kind of implemented this to where your extensions can kind of carry over, uh, from computer to computer with Firefox. Um, as to where Chrome really led the charge on that. And that was definitely uh, a huge benefit, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but also, I mean, my major workflow, you know, so so Chrome, I think, is the most secure uh, web browser, in my opinion. Okay, so as for the average person, Firefox can be the most secure web browser for the more advanced user. Okay. So it's really a matter of taste in, in my opinion, but yes, I will concede Firefox is the greatest browser, you know, of, of all time out there. Uh, and, and still is, especially since like with free speech me, uh, which is an app that lets you access dot bits without changing DNS settings that so far only works in Firefox. That is reason enough to use Firefox. Okay. Uh, cause you can start using that right now. And that gives Namecoin some serious value by the way. Uh, anyway, uh, Chrome, you know, yeah, I get it that the, you know, the, that they have a back, you know, Google has a backdoor on there. Like everything that's typed into the Omnibox 
uh, in Chrome is going to get sent to Google. And then by default, it goes to the NSA. Probably everything that gets done in Chrome goes to the NSA. You know, like like I understand that. Okay. Uh, but when I'm going to, you know, the other reason that I support Chrome is because I regularly use a Chromebook and I use Google a lot for my workflow. And I recommend a lot of people use Google for their workflow, uh, you know, like Google Drive and things like that. And Chrome, oddly enough, ha- is, is uniquely capable of doing a lot of things in Google Drive. If you use it with Firefox, it doesn't work the same way, uh, like uploading things to Google Drive. You know, Chrome makes that very, very simple. Uh, as to where with like Firefox, I think you have to upload entire folders. You can't do individual files. I don't remember exactly how that went. Um, but anyway, for your average everyday use, Chrome is just the winner. And certainly when you, when you get into the Chromebook world, which why do I use a Chromebook? Well, when I go to a hacking conference, um, you know, when I go to black hat or if I go to DEF CON or chaos or whatever, uh, Chromebooks are, you know, impervious, you can't hack them. And that's, you know, and when I'm on a tight schedule or whatever there, you know, I I've been on the wall of shame before. I don't want to be again. And so fine, you know, in the, so, so what I'm saying is in these cases, I'm not concerned about the NSA. If I'm concerned about the NSA, I'm not using Chrome. There it is, you know, but also, I mean, I am of the opinion, admittedly that if the NSA is really like tracking you, you know, forget it. It doesn't matter if you use Firefox or whatever, you know, if you don't have like some kind of alternative identity set up, uh, the NSA is, you know, gotcha. Nothing you can do, uh, in, in, in my opinion. So anyway, so that's it with Google versus, uh, you know, with Chrome versus Firefox. Uh, I do recommend, I like Chromium that is totally open source and it's not, the code's not as checked as well as Firefox is. So, but if one really, you know, wanted to keep using Chrome extensions and there's great ones out there like CryptoKit. Uh, for, you know, a, a message, PGP messaging and as a Bitcoin wallet, uh, it's really a, a, a serious killer app for, you know, for Chrome. Um, you know, if you want to use things like that and, you know, you, you just got to have it, then definitely you can go to Chromium. And in fact, for Chromebooks, you can use Chromium OS. I have yet to start doing that, but I will be testing that out soon. Uh, so that, that's a great open source alternative really, you know, to it. So that kind of solves like, what if I want the open source of Firefox and yet I don't want Google's, you know, business, uh, in my browser? Well, then you have Chromium or you have, of course, uh, you know, you have, uh, Iron is another, another, it's, it's a Chrome offshoot that doesn't have any of Google's nonsense in it, but the payoff there too. And this was another reason where, where Chrome was superior for me was that Chrome has built in flash, uh, and Firefox does not. And on some operating systems, I had a problem with flash and Chrome just, just handled it. No problem. And my music collection is actually all in Google play. So that that's just started using HTML five. So maybe that won't be a problem now. So the, the difference is shrinking, you know, but as it stands, if I had the option, uh, you know, I'd use Firefox all the time, but, uh, but, but Chrome just has some, some niceties that, you know, that makes my life easy that hopefully I described well, but that's a great question. Uh, but you're not, I don't, I don't consider anyone being wrong, you know, going either way. Uh, so that, but that's, that's, that's my answer to that. So thank you for asking about that. Uh, the next question is, this is from a couple episodes ago. A lot of people were wondering, I made a comment about how the Sphinx was not built by the Egyptians. And, um, 
I actually, when I was at Liberty Forum, I had three people ask me, you know, who, who built the Sphinx? He's like, they're like, I got, I got to know. And so, okay. And I, you know, and I had an emailer ask me too. Okay, fine. I'll let you know who built the Sphinx. Uh, the Sphinx in Egypt at Giza. I don't know. <laughs> but what I can tell you, which I consider a very valid answer, is that it wasn't aliens there. How about that? And that it wasn't the Egyptians. So that 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 is my answer to that question. Um, we talked about it. I talked about it very, very briefly. I was saying that, you know, by the Egyptians' own records, they admit they didn't build it. They found it. Okay. Uh, pretty much in, in sand. And b- before anyone says, wait a minute, what do you mean they, they found it under sand? It's like the, the Sphinx is huge. How did that get covered in sand? Well, actually, when the Sphinx was found, you know, uh, so many, you know, 100, 200 years ago, however long, or however long ago it was when they did find it, um, it was buried under rubble then. And they had to dig it out again. So this is actually, this is an object that has been dug out a few times. Um, so, you know, that's not uncanny, okay, that, that this would, thing would be buried, even regardless of its size. Um, so there's, there's a stell, it's called the dream stell, where the pharaoh essentially, you know, sees this thing. Um, but the interesting thing is that, as I mentioned, it didn't look the way it does now. Uh, they, the Egyptians definitely altered it as in the face of it was missing because there was originally a lion and it had a mane. And so what they did was, is they put a human face on it. Okay. And we're not clear when exactly this happened, but they put a human face on it and then they put like a, you know, a pharaonic headdress. Essentially they, you know, they converted the mane, the lion's mane into a pharaonic headdress. Uh, so, you know, I, I hate to answer that with the fact that I don't know. Okay. But I mean, that's just, that's, that's the answer is, is that I don't know, but, it, but it's really important to get that out there uh, because, you know, archeologists, this is a problem in, in really almost any field of study or science in that you kind of, you have to have an answer and sometimes you don't have an actual real answer. So you just make shit up to, to fit in. Okay. And archeologists are you know, they're great at lying. Uh, they, they do it all the time. Okay. Uh, especially if they find something that doesn't meet up with their worldview, they'll just, they'll just paint over it, you know, or they'll, they'll cover it with something or they'll, they'll destroy it or they'll lock it away in a, in a room in a, in a museum and for, you know, hundreds of years or thousands of years. Uh, this is, you know, this isn't new, you know, this, 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 this stuff happens. Okay. So Anyway, I mean, but like it even being called the Sphinx, the Sphinx is a Greek word and it's a Greek, you know, invention. All right. Uh, And so, you know, it actually it doesn't make sense when you look backwards, um, you know, for there to be this creature kind of with, you know, with with the human face on it uh, that, you know, looks like something that the Greeks would eventually later adapt when the Egyptians like, like a Sphinx is all over Greek writing. It's nowhere in Egyptian writing. There's no creature of that kind anywhere around. Um, and so, you know, it, it just, it doesn't make sense that the Egyptians just happen to have this one Sphinx. And somehow that was like the basis for all this stuff. No, that, that, that doesn't gel. That's not how, how cultures as we understand them work. Okay. Uh, so, 
uh, some people have compared it to, oddly enough, the Lama Sioux. There's an irony there because there's a Bitcoin company called Lama Sioux. They make the Bitcoin, quote unquote, ATM. Uh, that's quote unquote, because it's not really technically an ATM. Uh, and because the Lama Sioux is this winged creature that seems to have like a human head, uh, you know, maybe there's, there might be kind of something to that, but I don't, I don't think so because the Sphinx doesn't have wings. And so what do we know about the Sphinx that the Egyptians might have known about the Sphinx? If we know at least that they didn't build it. Well, what little writing there is about the Sphinx out there, you know, and, and this is important. You have to understand Egyptian culture. They wrote everything down like everything, you know, maybe some stuff from the old kingdom. They didn't start writing right away, but by the time, you know, few hundred years down the line, they started writing a bunch of stuff, certainly long before where archeologists place the building of the Sphinx, because they keep, they still keep, they keep that lie up. You know, they keep saying that the Egyptians built the Sphinx, uh, and you know, no, they didn't, but they do have some interesting, the Egyptians do have some interesting insights into what the Sphinx may be for or what it had. Um, we do know from archeologists that have studied it in, you know, the, the past hundred years or so that on the right paw, you'll have to pardon me. I I'm actually coming off of a cold this week. So anyway, but doing great. We're rocking out quadruple load. Um, but on the right paw, right front paw of the Sphinx, there is a stone that can be removed, which leads to a, uh, a chasm. I mean, there, you know, there's a tunnel, okay. That goes down. Now, one guy has gone into that and he said that he ran into a blockage. And now at this point, you know, due to governments, um, no one can take off this stone and no one can explore it further. But in Egyptian writing, or in Egyptian hieroglyphs, I should say, it's not writing, you have, uh, you know, drawings of, or hieroglyphs, I should say, not drawings, of the Sphinx, and underneath it, it just keeps going down. Now, how far down? You know, I'm not sure, okay? Cubits are really, you know, imperfect way of measuring things for starters, but then also there's no frame of comparison, really. Uh, other than maybe unless they were like, literally you could correlate it with the size of the Sphinx that drew in the hieroglyphs, but the Egyptians didn't always do that. You know, they didn't make it to scale. It's like, well, this is one, one hundredth the size of the Sphinx. And so this is how, you know, I mean, maybe you could do that, but, uh, you could get some kind of guess, but anyway, there is a chamber and then there's things at the bottom of this chamber, uh, things as in what's, you know, what's on the hieroglyph about it, just these squares. I don't know what they are. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, some of them being, you know, pretty woo woo, others being a lot more serious and a little more scientific in their thinking, uh, make the claim that, you know, that, that the, the knowledge of the ancients, you know, maybe a lot of things that we lost in the library of Alexandria are all down there, you know, that this is like, uh, this, there's some ancient library at the bottom of, uh, of the Sphinx, uh, because I mean, Hey, if, if the Egyptians didn't build it, then who put the stuff down underneath? a good question. Um, and you know, I, I don't know. That's the problem is I don't have the answers to this. Uh, the only thing I can say, okay, is that shocker, the pyramids weren't built by the Egyptians either. And I don't have as good a proof 
as I do for the Sphinx. But if you want to know about that, that's another question for another time. But essentially, I can I can tell you that the the Sumerians who kept incredible uh, trading records, you know, records of their uh, of their uh, mercantile exploits, uh, saw the pyramids. So if and they existed, you know, hundreds of years before the Egyptians. And so if they saw them and yet they claim to not build them. Which would probably include the Sphinx. Then who built it before the Sumerians? It's not aliens. Get that out of your fucking head. It's not aliens. I'll be back with more. Hey, Brian, what's that funny sticker over your laptop webcam? I was trying to spy on you while you were in the shower, but now I can't. See, that's why I have it. And it's from EFF.org. EFF? What's that? It's the Electronic Frontier Foundation, totally donor-funded organization that fights for internet freedom, privacy. Wow, that sounds great. So EFF.org, I support internet freedom and privacy, and maybe you do too. Yeah, and you can support them with Bitcoin. The Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. Brian! Stop playing those video games! Uh, 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 just a minute, Mom. Game Talk. It is time for Game Talk, where we talk video games. And in this edition of Game Talk, uh, I want to, I want to, there's no story. I don't have a story to bring up. Uh, I just want to talk about, or, you know, no, no article to bring up, I should say, because I am going to tell a story. Uh, but I want to talk about a, 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 a trend in games that, uh, that I find annoying. Of course, you know, I've done this before. I think in the past, I, I don't know, I'm sure I complained about MMR, MMOs, you know, whatever, all that good stuff. Um, but I'm going to talk about in-app purchases, IAPs, okay? And I just, I kind of want to rant about it uh, because they, they annoy me. And I didn't realize how much they annoyed me. I just figured that they were, you know, somehow not a big deal. Uh, you know, and that, that, yeah, okay. They might trick kids with this stuff, but most adults were really clamoring for something a little more meaty to where a game didn't have in-app purchases. They wanted a complete package and that's what the bulk of people did. But then I heard, you know, I was listening to this week in tech and Leo Laporte was talking about, uh, the new Simpsons game for Android and iOS. And in this game, he said that he spent hundreds of dollars, literally hundreds of dollars. And the game's essentially an endless runner. It wasn't like it was wild blood where you actually buy like armor and all this stuff. Uh, but the game is effectively, you know, an endless runner. And, and I just couldn't believe it. And then another person said like on candy crush saga, they spent, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars even, uh, on these games. And I'm just going, what, you know, what, what are you people falling for? Like, like, this is crazy. How, how could these games, like, there's not even a storyline in these games. What are you getting? You're literally paying for the passing of time. Now, I mean, I could get into endless runners. I, I just, I'm so annoyed by those games uh, because again, they have no point. They're just, it's a Skinner box saying, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, you know, and then giving you a little bit of something so that you keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. And eventually, 
okay, no, I, I just, I got to keep going. So I'll spend a little bit more and I'll spend a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, Temple Run 2 is a really popular case of this. The Iron Man games for, you know, the Marvel license of, of Iron Man um, or the Marvel franchise. Uh, those are endless runners. And it's just how nobody feels cheated by these games amazes me. Uh, because people used to work really, really hard. Developers, game developers used to work really, really hard to give you an experience, you know, that was worth your money. And instead now you're like, you're literally paying to just keep to, to, like I said, a pass the time because again, there's not some story you're going to get to, you know, it's not like you keep going, you keep going. You're going to find out the next thing because these games literally go on forever. So, you know, and the other thing is, is that, you're going to have to keep paying to play this like that, that, that drives me nuts because, and I mean, this is the same problem with, with MMOs to where, you know, it, it costs you hash out at least with games of your, you would hash out $60, you know, and you would essentially be able to play Sonic three all day long, you know, and 20 years later, you could still play Sonic three, you know, no problem. Uh, no, with these games, not, not a chance you could dump in tons and tons of money and there's really nothing to show for it. What achievements? I mean, like there's nothing, you can't go and talk to somebody and say, Hey, uh, yeah, man, that end boss was crazy. Or, you know, can you believe how Mega Man three ended, you know, all, all this stuff. And so it's amazing. I mean, like you're again, you're literally, you're paying to pass the time. And so these in-app purchases, I just, I had no idea that they were that successful to where some people are literally hashing out thousands of dollars, you know, and what do you have to, you got a level number to show for it. Now there's something to be said for subjective taste. Okay. Uh, it definitely doesn't follow my taste. So I guess I'm just sharing my own opinion, uh, on, on, on this whole thing, but you know, if you, if you're going to, I mean, like if I paid a thousand dollars for a Mortal Kombat game, boy, that would have to be amazing. And I'm just not seeing like the quality, you know, the, the quality doesn't compare there, there, there seems to be this very skewed within app purchases. There's this very skewed game developing model that occurs. Okay. To where the incentive being, you know, being given to game developers is create an addictive, you know, Skinner box for people to play because that's, what's going to make you money. Do not create, you know, this like JRPGs or these, you know, final fantasies or these games where you have, you know, a tremendous story, uh, you, you know, and, and just, you have to put in so many hours, but you get an emotional experience because you kind of grow with the character, uh, or even just a great platformer where it was so much fun and the story was, you know, kind of cool or just the gameplay was so wonderfully unique and each new level offered you a little bit more, uh, or, you know, like gave you new abilities and all this stuff, uh, you know, and that, and that those are the games that people want. And so I'm a little scared that like the game industry is just, I mean, maybe, maybe like me, there's people still hungry for that kind of game. Good. Okay. So we have a bunch of different things to appease to, but I'm just, I'm, I'm really, I'm shocked at like, like these Farmvilles and, and all of these games that they make so much money. And I'm worried because, you know, okay. Like the thing growing up for me was, you know, how do you explain why these video games are so much fun, 
uh, you know, and, and so engrossing to your parents. Well, it's like an interactive movie. You know, you get to, you just, you get control of the story and you get to do a whole lot more, uh, or the gameplay was just that good. And, you know, you explain it that way, but like with these in-app purchases, I mean, this stuff's just not, not going to quit. And I heard, uh, uh, Bert Vernert, or I'm sorry, Brett Vanat from school sucks project. One of my favorite podcasts. Uh, he was talking about how he saw a kid playing a game on a tablet and the game was literally designed like he could tell by the design of it. The game was literally designed for the kid to essentially like need more money. You know, and, and like the kid couldn't process that, that, that that's okay. So, I mean, so there's just, there's all these weird incentives wrapped up in in-app purchases. Uh, achievements are, are just as bad. There's so many things in modern gaming that, uh, I admittedly, I find kind of terrifying. No, they're not life threatening like the state. They're not, uh, you know, the, the, let's have some perspective. I understand that. Okay. I'm just saying I love video games. I like to tell people, you know, yeah, video games are a lot of fun. You get to have this great experience. Again, you could say it's like an interactive movie or, you know, you just have a, a just a wild time, you know, sprinting around, uh, you know, with a point, with a purpose, with a story uh, and with a lot of fun and designed for you to like have to up your skill, not pay more. With like a Sonic game, and I know Sonic Jump, uh, you know, has recently kind of gone into the IAP. So I'm not saying that there's any game company out there that's somehow a purist in all of this. Okay, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm really worried. You know that that all these games now are being designed to you know just get more money, not to make you know not not to demand more skill out of you, but to demand more out of your credit card, and you know, you can say, well, there's, there must be a market for that. And I just have a hard time believing that when you explain it to the person that way, okay, this game is designed to pass time, like say, while you're getting an oil change or something, but it's designed for you to pay money into it in the end, or you're just going to keep playing this, you know, the same level over and over again, because most of these games are being made with it in mind that eventually you have to pay at some point. Okay. Not all of them do that. Like if you play uh, 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 Riptide GP2, that has in-app purchases, but you can actually beat the entire game, you know, without having to spend any money if you don't want to. But you also have to pay up front for it. So, you know, there's some money involved, but I don't mind paying for a game up front. It's when I have to keep paying to play that it, that it really it's crazy. Um, and, you know, and here's the other thing, too, is that what if like... Uh, uh, what was, what's the game flappy bird that a lot of people are, were crazy about. I'll do a, I'll do a, a game talk about flappy bird. Cause that's a really interesting story, but flappy bird is this really popular game, kind of an endless runner, you know, really, really difficult. It got yanked from the play store and from the iOS store. So you can't get, you can't, yes, you can torrent it. Yes. Okay. But really you can't get flappy bird anymore. Okay. And so, what happens if you're playing Temple Run 2 or, you know, the new Simpsons game, you've hashed out thousands and thousands, and, you know, or even just hundreds of dollars, and then they rip it from the Play Store. All gone. You know, and hundreds of dollars down the tubes. And, and I guess, I don't know, you know, like that bothers me. 
And people can say, well, this could happen with Steam games, you know, to where one day, you know, Steam can say, no, we're going to yank this out. Actually, with Steam, they can't do that. Uh, if, if they pull a game from the Steam store, if you bought it on Steam before, you get to keep it. That's, that's in their contract. Okay, so this doesn't have to be that way. Uh, that's the only reason I actually went to digital downloads was because I trusted Steam in that legally, if they started yanking games away from my computer, I could have legal recourse. Okay, not that I want to go into the legal system, but you get my point. So I'm worried about this, you know, that, that these game makers, they, they really, they don't have to actually make a great game anymore. They just have to make a game that you want to keep putting money into. And I'm using you in the indefinite article. I'm not calling my listeners, uh, you know, stooped, uh, stupid or hoodwinked. Okay. I'm not saying anything of the sort. I'm talking about in general society in general that they're all falling for this, especially like I couldn't believe Leo Laporte. Like when he spent, when he said that he spent like 400, I think in one day on, on the Simpsons game, I was like, what, you know, that just totally blew my mind. So, you know, and what do we do about this? Of course, market signals, you know, you don't play the games. Uh, And I'm not saying, I'm not telling you don't play them. I'm just saying, be aware, you know, that these games are being designed not to give you a great harrowing story or gameplay experience, but to just get as much money as they possibly can from you. Is there anything wrong with getting money? No. Is there, remember, value is not a dirty word either. Tonight. Night Rider, who crashes into your living room. I don't believe this. Well, you'd better believe it. A lone crusader for justice drives this crime crasher. The world's most fantastic car. And together they can do just about anything. After all, we're only human. Don't press your luck. And now, buckle up for action with the fastest show on television, Night Rider. See Night Rider online today. And now back to Sovereign Tech. Wow. It's a website of the week. It is time for website of the week where I cover a website that, uh, that I find interesting, uh, useful, sometimes a terrible website. Did one of those recently. Uh, but this, this website is one that, Probably people that listen to this show know about, but if you don't know about it, uh, I want to make sure you do know about it. Uh, and that's the intercept. Okay. And then the intercept, what it, it's Glenn Greenwald's new kind of, uh, you know, it's his new news source. It's his new news platform since he left the guardian, which he said he was going to be doing. Uh, and it's all part of uh, firstlook.org, all of which is owned by, uh, Pierre Amidjar, who was the, the creator of eBay. Uh, back in uh, 95, <laughs> which it's amazing to think that eBay has been around since 1995. Uh, but anyway, and he's already been breaking just incredible stories uh, by the day, you know, or at least every other. No, I think every day there, there's a story up. And so, you know, it's Glenn Greenwald. If you trust the guy, uh, obviously, this is a person who has personally put his neck, uh, you know, on the line. Uh, stuck his neck out to reveal what Edward Snowden had to reveal to the world. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's, a in journalism, there's no such thing as being unbiased. Uh, but there is such a thing as being willing to allow the presentation of multiple perspectives. 
And I think Glenn Greenwald does do a pretty good job of that. Uh, so I recommend checking it out. You, you actually have to go to firstlook.org slash The Intercept. Okay. And that'll take you to it. Uh, again, stories every day. Uh, and, and it's always, you know, really, really enlightening stuff. Uh, I'm glad that a lot of these people are, you know, a lot of these big names in journalism are stepping away from the big names in journalism, as in, you know, like Glenn Greenwald is leaving The Guardian, which is one of the largest papers in the world. Uh, and, you know, th this allows them to put stuff out that would be too controversial for, you know, perhaps the, you know, the higher ups at, uh, at, at various news agencies. Uh, so I think it's a great thing and good. You know, I mean, if you've got a name, yeah, go ahead and do a blog and, and get your stuff out there. If you have a trusted name, uh, and the internet allows for that dissemination of information without, you know, the heavy costs that we once had for, you know, what it costs to actually make a magazine or a newspaper. Uh, so it's a fantastic thing. I'm, I'm glad it's out there. I'm excited that the intercept exists. Uh, and I mean, he's really gone out to Glenn, Glenn Greenwald has gone out of his way to make sure you can contact him with some degree of anonymity. As far as I have understood it, people have been able to do so with, uh, with relative ease. So that's great. Uh, and you know, these things are going to pop up. These alternative news sources are, are all over the place. Everybody's kind of making their own now, admittedly. And again, everybody's got a bias. You can't, I just, I don't think it's possible to walk away from it. Uh, Jeff Jarvis, a, uh, a professor of journalism, and also he's the host of This Week in Google on, uh, on Twit. Uh, he is, you know, very well known for, for saying that, that, you know, journalists are, are dead, essentially. You know, that just that kind of, you know, the, these objective, uh, you know, reporting just it's it doesn't exist anymore. OK, so always keep that in mind when you look at these websites. Uh, of course, you know, we could get into the conspiracy that Glenn Greenwald is actually working for the NSA, blah, 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 blah. Uh, okay, fine. If you believe that, you know, there's really nothing I can say, I think to, to dissuade you, uh, because it's, it's not provable and it's unprovable or, <laughs> you know, what I mean? uh, or it's not provable and it can't really be disproven either. I suppose, you know, if one has that mindset, so, but check it out. Firstlook.org slash the intercept, uh, great stories there. Hey everybody. It's Stephanie. I am the sovereign tech producer. But did you know I am also a voiceover artist? Yes, it's true. I make audiobooks, commercials for your business. I narrate explainer videos. Pretty much any audio project that you can think of, I'm probably willing to work on it, or I have worked on it in the past. And if you want to hear some samples of my previous work, or you want to find out a little bit more about what I do, then I encourage you to check out my voiceover website, which is smvoice.info, smvoice.info. Now back to Sovereign Tech. Hacker Stories. It is time for Hacker Stories, where we cover stories that uh, have to do with security issues, or sometimes we talk about hackers, black hat, white hat, gray hat. I consider them all heroes, though this little story might, you know, <laughs> might make a, a uh, might make that a contradiction. Because this is a story out of Forbes about a group of hackers that um, 
you know, may, may not be the good guys. Uh, and they're not necessarily working for the government. Um, and again, this is from Forbes and it's from Forbes by Andy Greenberg always does a great write-up. Uh, and it's about Endgame. Um, and I guess fair to say, yeah, they, they do plenty of work for the government. So in that case, they're kind of like Tao where Tao doesn't, uh, you know, I don't consider Tao heroes. I mean, they're genuinely they're, Tao is the the team of hackers that works for the NSA. They're, you know, their crack unit of hackers. Uh, and I, I, I dare not call them hackers. Those are bad actors. Those are government agents. And uh, really, Endgame might, you know, we might decide that they're kind of the same thing. Um, and this is Inside Endgame, a second act for the Blackwater of hacking. In the classic hacker career narrative, a juvenile genius breaks into the Internet's most sensitive networks, gets caught, and then settles into a lucrative corporate gig selling his skills for defense. Nate Fick is trying to pull off the same story with an entire company. Fourteen months ago, Fick took over as chief executive of Endgame, perhaps the most controversial name in Washington, D.C. cybersecurity contracting. For years, Endgame's elite hackers worked in the shadows of the Beltway, to build and sell zero-day exploits, an industry, uh, an industry term for malicious code that abuses a previously unidentified vulnerability. So these people, Endgame, they, uh, they literally make, you know, they find and, and, and build and sell zero-day exploits. As a contractor to military and intelligence uh, agencies, including the NSA, it enabled some of the customers, um, some of those customers' most intrusive spying practices by offering ways to break into software from the likes of Microsoft, IBM, and Cisco for millions of dollars. Fixed daunting task now to shift his firm's focus to the far wider market in commercial defense products and in the process to shed its reputation as the Blackwater of hacking. The 36-year-old CEO, a former elite Marine reconnaissance captain, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan after developing what he describes as a personal distaste for violence. And uh, boy, you know, I'm not going to defend what this guy does right now, but I can definitely fully understand, uh, you know, developing a personal distaste for violence being in the military. The very same thing happened to me. Hint said a motivation for the change beyond profit an ethical cloud still hangs over Endgame for its track record in undermining the Internet's security. Fix first move, taking Endgame out of the zero-day exploit game. The exploit business is a crummy business to be in, says Fick, sitting at a coffee shop near Endgame's unmarked office in Arlington, Virginia, which has never before, uh, which has never before allowed a reporter inside. If we're going to build a top-tier security firm, we have to do things differently. This is one of those happy circumstances where business real realities, reputational concerns, and my personal feelings aligned. The company now touts itself as a big data analysis firm selling vulnerability intelligence software that alerts clients to digital risks. Its tools pull together information from sources ranging from a customer's antivirus programs and intrusion detection system to its hu human resources and physical security data and pairs the information with Endgame's own research on malware and blacklisted IP addresses. Integrating those feeds into a slick user interface that uses its software shows any anomaly that might represent a security threat. Whether a hijacked computer sending source code to Pakistan or a rogue IT employee badging in at midnight to print the finance department's 
sensitive documents. Endgame's new business direction helped the company raise a second round of financing last year, led by Homeland Security-focused Paladin Capital, bringing its total investment to $60 million after earlier investments by a whole bunch of companies. By Forbes' estimate, the company earned $20 million in revenue for 2013, Fick claim aims to more than double that number in 2014 and flip the balance of sales so that the majority within two years comes from the private sector. But Fick's friendlier face for Endgame isn't the full story. Its board still includes former NSA chief Kenneth Minahan, and it's chaired by Christopher Darby, director of the CIA-backed venture firm InQtel. Though Fick says Endgame no longer sells exploits, the company doesn't deny that it sells tools to the federal government that can be used for offensive hacking, the digital equivalent of stocks, sites, and barrels, if not the bullets. After all, some vulnerability intelligence that finds chinks in a customer's armor can also be used to discover them in a surveillance target. Case in point, inside Endgame's startup-style office, complete with a ping-pong table and entertainment console covered in hacker-themed DVDs, uh, an, engineering sh- an engineer shows me an older product codenamed Bonesaw. Uh, we're trying to come up with less interesting names, quips Chief Security Officer Nilafar Howe. Bonesaw pulls internet data to show that software runs on which machines around the globe, like Google, like a Google Maps for hackers. With a few clicks, a user can zero in on a computer and see its vulnerabilities, along with a list of publicly available techniques to hack it. Fick won't say what Endgame's government customers might do with that tool. In fact, he won't comment at all on the specifics of Endgame's government business, citing secrecy agreements uh, in a year in which the NSA has been accused out of out of of out of control spying. The lack of transparency leaves critics to assume the worst. It sounds to me like they're trying to put a rose on a pig, says James Bamford, author of three books on the NSA and a vocal critic of Endgame's practices. If you're saying you're right on the path, but won't say what you're doing, the burden's on you. Critics can't deny, however, that Fix Endgame is different from the one he inherited with from his predecessor, Chris Rowland. In the late 1980s, Rowland tried out rogue intrusion as a young hacker under the handle of Mr. Fusion before putting his skills to use for the feds. And that, of course, is a very unfortunate story uh, that maybe I'll, I'll share that for a hacker stories. Chris Rowland is quite the character. Um, under Roland, the company offered an extensive package of zero day exploits for $2.5 million a year, boasting of potential targets, including Russian oil refineries and the Venezuelan ministry of defense and promising zero disclosure of discovered vulnerabilities to software makers who could patch their weaknesses. We don't ever want to see our name in a press release. Roland wrote to a colleague in early 2010. So at one point, this was a company that, you know, nobody wanted to know about. And there's more to the story. You can read about it. The point I wanted to really bring up in all of this is that, yes, you know, we are in a country, the United States, we are in a world really that runs on corporatism, you know, not capitalism, not socialism, corporatism. Okay. Or some people call it crony capitalism, whatever. That's fine. But the point I'm bringing across is that there is a joining and this should be, you know, to a lot of listeners of the show, I know this isn't a shock, but there is a joining of the private sector and the public sector, and they are working together even in the most dastardly of actions. Okay. And the reason I want to bring this up now, of course, end game is useless if there isn't 
you know, the monopoly on force that the government has. Okay, so if there wasn't a government, a company like Endgame wouldn't be something to worry about because so what? What is anybody going to even do with that information per se? Uh, but you know, maybe there's a concern to be had. Maybe the market wouldn't filter out something like end game. Maybe you'd have, you know, uh, economic espionage or industrial espionage as you call it. Uh, and, and that's, that's the point I'm, I'm, I want to make here is that we, you got to look at everybody that's doing this. You know, it's not just the NSA. You can't just say, well, the government's doing this. No, the government, yes, the government is pushing out the money, right? There's money to be had. So a company is filling in. The, you know, an entrepreneur is, okay, how can I make this money? How can I fill in this need? The government needs to crack into systems. And so an entrepreneur takes advantage of that. Okay. Uh, and I, I get that. I, you know, I understand all of that. And so, but we have to look, this is something I talked about a few weeks back. I said that the private sector is doing things just as bad as the NSA and as GCHQ. And if anything, they're even facilitating the NSA and GCHQ. And so my point in that is that, you know, what, what do we do about this? And that's why I'm saying that, okay, encrypting, as I mentioned in other episodes, encrypting things, encrypting all the things is a great idea because yeah, you might not be able to like, you know, somehow black yourself out from the grid. Okay. And from being, you know, on the, on the watch list or whatever, but just the fact that you put say software, uh, on your, you know, on your phone, you put apps on your phone or you buy a phone that is designed to not allow the microphone to get turned on by the FBI or the NSA might save the life of someone else. I don't want you to sacrifice anything, but if, you know, if everybody did that, had a phone like that, that did that, and they all stopped using Facebook messenger while they were at it, well then, you know, their system has some black spots that could save somebody's life. Okay, so there's that. But the the point, again, that I'm making here is that we need an overall mindset change. Okay, these guys at one point, you know, were hackers, you know, run of the mill hackers. They didn't want to work for the government per se. Um, Or if they did, they're doing it out of some kind of patriotism, maybe. Uh, You know, Fick definitely had patriotism. I mean, he was originally in the Marines. And so the real answer to this isn't so much encryption. We have to change people's hearts and minds about the fact, you know, that, that, Hey, this isn't right to do. Okay. Because if you just end the government, you still have end game out there. And then, well, maybe you, you know, maybe you're the kind of person who says, Hey, as long as it's private, I don't care. You know, there's a market for it It needs to be filled. Um, You know, but I mean, that's like saying, okay, fine. So there's a market for child porn. No, there isn't. Okay. So if our privacy is such a big deal, we can't just be looking at the government. There's private companies that are doing things just as crazy and we need to be just as aware of them. And these companies don't want to be known that they exist like Endgame. They didn't want to be on any paperwork. Is it changing now? Sure. But maybe it's because they know they can't hide anymore. This is Sovereign Tech, and I'll be back with more. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network. 
a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Would you like to play a game? Game of the Week. It is time for Game of the Week, where I cover a week that maybe, you know, went under the radar or, you know, just didn't, it didn't get the AAA treatment, uh, but it's still a great game. Or maybe it's uh, something that needs a good reinstall, or maybe it's something really unique. And this week I have something that is, I think, really unique. Uh, and that's, it's called Play to Cure Genes in Space. Okay. Now, uh, this is out for, for Android and iOS. And it's really wild because what it does, um, it's a game that harnesses your brain power to help analyze real cancer data. I've talked about these kind of games a little bit in the past where there were games that helped like people, uh, you know, do various things in labs, you know, they, they, they turned it into a game and then uh, they were able to siphon through a whole bunch of data. And now this is happening on mobile devices, you know, on tablets and on phones. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about it here from Android police. Cause I just think this is so cool. Uh, most games are just about entertainment, but sometimes you can do a little good too. play to cure genes in space is a mobile game developed for cancer research. UK as a way to get people all over the world involved in sorting through real genetic data and help scientists get a handle on the causes of cancer. Also, there are spaceships. In the game, you are collecting element alpha, which is a made-up thing. You chart a course through fields of the glowing blue stuff, and you want to hit the most dense areas, of course. What you're really looking at is DNA microarray data. One of the best ways to determine what is causing cancers is to find out which genes have been lost or duplicated among sufferers. A DNA microarray looks at the gene frequencies in thousands of people, but the data has to be interrupted, has to be interpreted. When you fly through the element alpha, you are actually showing researchers where the uh, copy number variations begin and end in the array data. Gene variations that are more common are more likely to be important in treating cancer. So computers can do some of this without human intervention, but humans are actually better than current software at noticing subtle changes in patterns like in the DNA microarray data. The game isn't hugely challenging, but it's potentially really important stuff. So here's a solution to earlier. Look, if you want to pass your time, this game won't take your money uh, and it will pass your time, but you could be saving lives. How about that? I think it's fantastic. This is a great thing to do with, with video games. Yeah. Is this kind of gamifying life? Yeah, to some degree. And I'm not a huge fan of gamifying life in, in all areas, but, uh, but if you're already the kind of person that just, you know, is sitting there and needs to pass the time, crank up, uh, jeans in space and Hey, you know, who knows what could happen because of that? Uh, I think it's fantastic. This is a great way to really, you know, if anything, this is just a better, you know, user interface for lab work. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I, I know how I've heard how grueling lab work can be. So if it can be made into something a little more fun, then go for it. And to have, you know, millions of people around the world, maybe, maybe billions even, uh, you know, jump on, jump on a game like this and go through that, that cancer data as fast, as fast as possible, you know, let's do it. Uh, who knows what else they could implement this for? Uh, in fact, that's why interestingly, like it has a subheader, so it's played to cure. So there's probably going to be a lot more games 
coming out in this vein that are going to work on, you know, that, that are going to be perhaps for other types of diseases, other types of cancers, whatever. Uh, and I think I just, again, I think it's fantastic. Uh, a great direction to take games, uh, totally worth it. If, uh, you know, if a cancer research lab or, you know, any research lab wanted to put their money into developing a really great game that could help them go through data. Oh man, do it, do it. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, th- this is one of the wonderful things. This is where like, you know, come on, <laughs> let's have the NRA complain about this game, right? <laughs> uh, ridiculous. But, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can download it. Um, I played it for a little bit, you know, yeah, it's not the most challenging, not like terribly engaging. There isn't, you know, a grand story or anything, but in this case, I know I'm actually achieving something at the same time. Not that we always have to achieve something, you know, there's something, uh, to be said in life for those moments where you do nothing. Those, those can be very beautiful moments. And I think they're important moments, but if you really just have to pass the time, why not, you know, who knows, maybe save some lives, advance medical research while you're at it. Uh, I think that's fantastic. So, you know, play to cure genes in space, uh, iOS and Android, uh, doubtful it'll ever come out for windows phone because nothing ever does. Uh, well, some things do. Sorry. If you use windows phone, I apologize, but, uh, I think you know how bad you have it. Uh, don't need me telling you anyway, I'll be back with more. This is Brian Sovereign and you're listening to Sovereign Tech. Do you have a business or product that you are interested in getting advertised to a largely U.S.-based audience on an award-winning podcast and radio show airing on hundreds of radio stations? Let Free Talk Live be a part of your advertising portfolio, because the world of audio never fades. Contact me, Brian Sovereign, and I can get an advertising package that will work within your budget. Email me at brian at freetalklive.com. And that's Brian with an I. Again, brian at freetalklive.com. What are you doing? I can't believe I caught you again. You know, Jesus doesn't approve of this little habit of yours. I know, baby, I know it's wrong, but it feels so right. Well, it ain't. But I've been doing it since I was 12 years old. It's nothing but a sinful perversion of nature, if you ask me. But baby, I don't ever want to stop looking at tech websites, new gadgets, video games, software, or any of that stuff. Well, then I'm leaving. Okay. Bye. Pick of the Week. It is time for Pick of the Week, where I generally just geek out. And this week, I want to geek out. (laughs) Uh, It can be either, you know, a television show, movie, comic book, uh, a book, a product. It could be just about anything. Sometimes it's a topic, you know, and and actually I get a lot of email where people enjoy when I do topics. But uh, I want to talk about a television show. I want to talk about what I consider the second greatest television show in history. Uh, And if you've noticed one of the newer ads uh during this show there's a show called blake seven and maybe you've been wondering what the hell is blake seven it's a great question what is blake seven because not a lot of people know about it even to this day um blake seven was a show uh made by terry nation 
Terry Nation is known, is very popular for creating the Daleks in Doctor Who. Uh, in fact, there, Terry apparently at one point tried to make, uh, like, I think he came up with the storyline to where Blake Seven and Doctor Who would actually exist in the same universe. Okay, not that that would interest any new Doctor Who fan because they don't care about anything that was made before 2005. Uh, but cause this show was made in like 19, uh, ran from 78, 1978 to 1981. Uh, and it just, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I wasn't even born. Well, the last season I was born when this came out, but, uh, you know, this is something I caught later on growing up. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a show about a, uh, you know, a freedom movement or at least a rebellion against a tyrannical, human empire there there are aliens in this and yeah a lot of times they're bad guys uh but generally it's all about blake uh you know being the main character and his crew uh that they are um you know they're 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 taking on the 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 terran federation so and it's really i don't like to say this much there are very few shows that i think this actually applies to okay um where a show is libertarian in nature and Blake seven is definitely libertarian, uh, in nature. I mean, there's just, there's no question about it. Uh, other shows that are libertarian that are explicitly, in my opinion, libertarian, uh, Babylon five is libertarian. Um, game of Thrones is not libertarian at all. Battlestar Galactica is not libertarian at all. Either one. Uh, I love the 78 one, but not libertarian. Um, but Blake seven is really, that's one of those. And it's a very dark show. Uh, it's a show that where things that happen in one episode can carry on to the next kind of like Babylon five. But remember this came, you know, decades before or a decade before. And uh, actually Joe Straczynski who created Babylon five said that, you know, Blake seven was a huge inspiration for Babylon five. Uh, and maybe, maybe that's where, you know, I mean, Blake seven, Babylon five, B seven, B five, you know, maybe there's some kind of relation there. I don't remember if Joe ever said anything like that, but I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a show, you know, interstellar show, not the most, uh, you know, it's not hard science fiction per se, uh, essentially this group of prisoners, uh, in a rebellion, at least Blake is, was part of the rebellion. The other one, uh, is care Avon, who is a hacker, which is really, really cool that, that there's an actual hacker. That's a, that's a hero, right? Hackers are heroes. Um, and he actually, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving a whole lot away here, but, uh, Kara Avon, the hacker, uh, him and Blake are always kind of at odds with each other. You know, they kind of have a, a shaky relationship and, you know, like Kara Avon actually becomes, he, he's my favorite character in the show. Uh, and he actually becomes like the captain, like Blake things happen. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and so they find these prisoners uh, along with, uh, you know, a, a few other characters, uh, a couple of female characters who come off as very strong and, uh, and, you know, and other guys, um, they find a alien an ancient alien ship called the liberator or what they end up calling the liberator. Uh, they also find a, you know, this like supercomputer, uh, eventually and, it's all about their rebellion and trying to bring down the, the Terran Federation because the Terran Federation in the first episode wiped out, uh, innocent people in a rebellion. And you find out that this Federation is actually putting stuff in the food of, uh, you know, of 
citizens of the Federation to keep them docile, uh, all, all kinds of things. You know, it's just, it's really, really oppressive. Um, and so it's all about that. But again, it's so real. It's so dark. Uh, episodes will not have happy endings. People do die. Uh, and, and that's, that's kind of what makes it so, uh, engaging is just how serious it is. Uh, some people insult it for that because that it is so dry or not dry, but that it is so serious. Um, and even though the effects today would look hokey, it is a very serious show. Um, a, a lot of people think that, that, that makes it crazy, you know, and that it is depressing. Uh, I don't find the show depressing at all. Uh, the last episode is notorious for ending badly. That's all I'm going to say about that. But, you know, I think that's pretty refreshing, quite frankly. Uh, a lot of people, I wonder, you know, uh, what, what's the greatest Star Wars movie of all time? I know what you're going to say. The Empire Strikes Back, right? Well, I, I disagree, but I get it. Um, and I think the reason that the empire strikes back is the greatest star Wars movie of all time is because it doesn't have that happy ending. And I think in 1980, nobody knew what that meant, you know, unless you saw the French connection or something. And so that's, that's really striking. Uh, and I, and I like that. Okay. You know, it's, it's almost Romeo and Juliet where, you know, it's kind of bittersweet, I guess. And, yeah, you know, that, that that's very unique and you don't, you don't get that like even Battlestar Galactica, which is, you know, the new Battlestar Galactica, which is easily the most depressing show of all time, uh, still had a happy ending that I found rather annoying. So, you know, t take that for what you will, but it's important. Part of the reason I'm open to the idea that the reason I love Blake seven so much is that when I first saw it, I saw it, it was on reruns, uh, like in the late eighties. And so I was a little kid and I saw it and it was science fiction. So it was exciting to me, but I remembered it. And, and when I, as I got older, I said, I got to get my hands on the show. And this is before torrenting was really a thing. And so I actually paid hundreds of dollars to get VHS tapes made of Blake seven and got them shipped from Britain to me in New York. <laughs> and so like, I thought I was like, you know, smuggling this stuff in. It was, it was actually very, very Blake seven of me to do. And it was so like all, you know, my, myself and my friends, we just sat around and we were just engrossed by this thing that really most American audiences, unless you grew up a lot older in the eighties, didn't really get to appreciate and enjoy and see. And so this was so rare, such an incredible experience. You know, you, you felt rebellious just seeing it, you know, this is like, oh, you know, it's like we're from behind enemy lines, you know, I mean, the, the, the whole thing. Um, and the, the show, you know, it was, it, it was great. It was worth every penny I paid for, in my opinion, you may not think so. Um, but everybody that's watched Babylon five, which is the other show that I tout the shit of, out of on the, on this show, uh, it, a lot of people have watched and they've been very, very happy that they've watched it. And I, you know, I'm always glad to hear about that. Um, but anyway, so maybe you'll like Blake seven, maybe you won't. Uh, it is interesting. You know, there's a lot of interesting little facts about it. Uh, one is, is that the, the guy who played care Avon, Paul Darrow, uh, the actor that played him. He actually bought the franchise years after the show got canned because he wanted, you know, for there to be a revival, you know, with, with science fiction getting popular again uh, at various times. Uh, and there's been talk of that. Sci the sci-fi channel, apparently, or Siffy or 
sci-fi, whatever you call it now, um, they wanted to, to do a remake of the show. And, you know, apparently that's been up in the air for a couple of years now, just hasn't happened. Um, but Paul Darrow is still very active in Blake seven media. There's now there's a, well, you heard the ad during this show, uh, for big finish productions. They run, they do audiobooks uh, and audio series of, you know, essentially new episodes of Blake seven. Now they take place. Like I said, the last episode ends pretty bad. So these, these audio productions don't take place after that. Okay. They take place during like the, the, the heyday where, where Blake is still around and everybody's aboard the liberator because in like season three, they actually get a new ship called the Scorpio. Uh, and they, they lose the liberator, not giving anything away. Believe me, you got to see it to understand. Um, but there are books that have come out recently, uh, eBooks, you know, and, and of course you can buy hard copies, uh, where they do take place after, and now there's audio adventures that take place after, um, you know, what, what happens in the, the last episode. And it kind of, kind of brings it all back, you know, and you get, you get kind of a return of the heroes, which is okay with me. Like I said, yes, it's great. It's unique that it ended on, on a sour note. Okay. But at the same time, I'm more than happy to have more adventures of Care Avon. I, I mean, please. Uh, so I'm, I'm not really giving anything away. You, again, you got to see it to really understand what I'm, what I'm talking about on a lot of this. I'm just trying to say that there's so much for you to explore. I know a lot of science fiction fans, you know, they don't just want a little bit. They, they like, we appreciate franchises, you know, and things that continue on. And Blake seven, I mean, the way that Doctor Who came back, I can only picture how if someone finally brought Blake Seven back, just how big it would be. Uh, because what happens today is, it seems, is that a lot of younger fans, um, and I don't mean this to come off as, as like insulting, but a lot of younger fans will be like, oh, this has history. Okay. And so they identify with it and they think that it somehow, you know, like has a degree of authority and somehow it must be good because it existed before. Uh, as to where they would be a little more lenient to try something totally new. Uh, like, I mean, come on, isn't, isn't not mind blowing that there's a remake, a television show of teen wolf. Come on. And that it's popular. Michael J. Fox was great, but really, <laughs> I mean, that's just too much. Uh, anyway, so if Blake seven comes back, you know, and maybe if enough people make a stink about it, I'd love to have it back. Uh, I really would hope it wasn't a remake, but I'll take a remake of Blake seven. I, you know, I could understand it doesn't, it really, it, it doesn't hold up timelessly as well as like say Star Trek, the original series does. Yes. I can still watch it and enjoy it, but I understand in like the popular mindset, I don't think people would, would be as receptive of it just by the way it looks. And that's unfortunate, but I think it's true. So I, I would accept a remake of Blake seven and maybe if they uh, made a lot of nice little, you know, jabs at modern government situations, I would really appreciate that too. Uh, so you can go to Blake com and check it out. Of course, the ad you heard earlier in the show will mention that. Um, but anyway, I love it. Second greatest show in history. In my opinion, there's really nothing out there quite like it. Uh, it is very, very unique. The only thing quite like it, you know, that, that has similar, uh, attributes and themes would be Babylon 5 but hopefully you've already watched that so anyway this show is done uh, I'll be back in a couple weeks 
Um, of course, I'm going off to the Texas Bitcoin Conference. If you are a listener to the show, please feel free to say hi to me. Uh, I will be giving a very intriguing talk. I promise to be entertaining while I'm there. Uh, so do check that out. And again, you know, you got a quadruple load, so just wait. More will be coming. Carpe Lucem. I'll see you in a couple weeks. This has been Sovereign Tech. Visit us at SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com. There you can connect with us, see more of what you've heard on today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is open source. We encourage you to share. Later, nerds. <laughs>